Just a quick moment to say a big thank you to my sponsor for this episode, Drowsy. Anyone who suffers from anxiety or stress will know just how detrimental poor sleep can be to your well-being. I, like you, know that a good night's sleep is profoundly healing and can really improve the quality of your life, which is why I've invested in a drowsy sleep mask, as it guarantees that I'm going to wake up feeling great. I know what you're all thinking. It's just a sleep mask. But I can tell you it's unlike any sleep mask I've ever used. It has transformed the quality of my sleep. I'm sleeping better than ever before, in total darkness, and rarely wake up during the night. It's made from padded silk, which wraps around your head, and I can't tell you how heavenly it feels. And I don't wake up with any horrible skin creases or puffy eyes. You can't put a price on being able to sleep well every night, and it's reassuring knowing that whatever day you've had, you can go home and wrap yourself in drowsy and drift off. So if you're in need of the best night's sleep ever, Drowsy is the answer. Head to drowsysleepco.com and use the code JULIA for 25% off of any of their sleep accessories today. That's drowsysleepco.com, D-R-O-W-S-Y, and use the code JULIA, J-U-L-I-A, for 25% off. Hello and welcome to season two of the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week I'll invite you into my therapy room, where I will be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. My mission is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations, which may contain difficult emotions, can be profoundly healing. Ivana Lynch, I am so thrilled to meet you. I feel like I've been immersed in your world the last few days, kind of getting to know you before I actually oh. meet you, which is one of the great joys of doing a podcast is that I can build a relationship virtually and then meet you in person. Yeah, likewise, actually, I've been listening to your podcast, although you're a very... I suppose, well, just such a knowledgeable therapist because I don't get as much of you as I do from your lovely guests. You are such, you've such a beautiful way of holding space. So um, I need to get to know you. <laughs> but you can ask me questions too. I think, I think good yeah. therapy is relational. I think it's reciprocal, although the, the purpose of it is for me to offer you the space. Starting with labels is always quite strange, isn't it? Because we're really going to be looking beneath the labels. But you are an actor, a writer, an activist, a vegan, and a multi-podcaster, an entrepreneur, and a curious, creative, learning human who really loves animals <laughs> and her cat, Puff. <laughs> yes, Puff. Puff, Puff is upstairs today, though. I have I have Mallow, my dog, joining me today. But yes, all, all furry things, really. <laughs> I mean, you're best known as Luna Lovegood and in the Harry Potter films. 
which I guess is something that will always be part of your identity. And, and I know, because I've heard you say both something you're proud of and also something to grow from, like it's not mm-hmm. all of you. And so given that Harry Potter is such a big part of your life and you're growing and changing, you were a kind of a teenager when you when you were acting. Mm-hmm. What is a particular challenge that you are facing or have faced given who you are now? That's a big question. Um, Part of what you're describing, it's something I've been dealing with a lot the last, I suppose, year especially, of how to connect with people because people do have this perception. I've actually, like, I think the past couple of years really just been playing with my relationship with this whole image people have or with fame, things like that. I don't know if it's a help or a hindrance to connect with people. The way my career started and the way a lot of people connected with the Harry Potter series, their career started was unprecedented. And a lot of the time people don't really know what to do with us (laughs) professionally, personally, everything. So yesterday, one of my big passions is circus, is uh, like aerial arts, all that. I saw that on your Insta. Yeah, I love it. It's just, it's, I suppose it's one of my forms of therapy. Yesterday in class, this girl was just like staring at me the whole time. And I think like what I, I sometimes forget, I kind of go, what, is there something on my face? Like, what is it? <laughs> and um, I just want to talk about the move. I just want to like, or get to know the person. And And that's one of those inherent contradictions of being an actor is that you want to study people. You want to be the one who's sitting in the park, people watching, and yet, if you do people look back at you and go oh I know you (laughs) from that thing and anyway this girl in the class she was looking at me and at the end she asked me are are you Luna Lovegood and suddenly like our whole interaction changed and she wanted a picture and I was like who even am I what am I doing (laughs) I don't know like it's like constantly flicking between those roles so um that's one of my struggles at the moment knowing how to connect with people because a lot of the time we're just not on neutral territory. Like they know a lot about me. They have a perception about me. Um, I've put a lot out there. I've put a book out there. So, you know, yeah. some people could have read that. I don't know how to connect with them. I feel like sometimes I make people uncomfortable by being there, by being in a class or by, yeah, just my presence. So, and like, I am an introverted person. So a lot of the time I, my comfort state is just to be at home with my cat and my dog and my books and yet I get lonely. I tell you what, the, the sort of images I'm getting is there are so many layers of you and the layer that people first see is the fame layer, like the performative Luna Lovegood that they have a relationship with, which is their personal relationship mm-hmm. with the movies and what they mean to them, but also what they've made of you. So you never meet on equal territory. So you never meet Mm. as a stranger to a stranger where you can have that innocence, if you like, of, oh, what do you do? Where were you born? So the unequalness feels like what you're saying is it puts you both in tension. Mm -hmm. They go, ooh, exciting, and I want want some of that. I think I know that. But I think it's more like I want some of that. And for you, it must be well, what are you wanting? I'm just me. 
you know, a bit like that Julia Roberts group. Oh, in Notting Hill, yeah. In Notting Hill, I'm just a girl in a shop <laughs> wanting a boy to love me, something like that. I think for my situation in particular, it's not just that they want me, it's like they want me from 16 years ago. And that, that might not be true, but that for the most part is what people know me from and what they connect to. And it's like, as you say, it's a projection, it's a part of their childhood and they're relating to that character and what it felt and it's almost like I struggle with, well, can I be me today? Can I be my full self? Or am I going to disappoint them? And I, I don't want to think that way. I don't want to be constantly reaching over, leaning into how can I play to this person's uh, expectations? Connection is something I really struggle with. I suppose work is the way it comes most naturally um like when I'm doing a play or a film it's like I'm meeting other people who you don't have that boundary but in between when I'm not working I really really struggle like I actually <laughs> um because I seek depth in everything I do I can't do small talk I don't like it it makes me panic makes you panic yeah yeah I don't know what to say it seems a bit pointless to me I want to have a really deep conversation about what's weird in your life or what's fascinating or what are you insecure about but I, I don't know how to just keep a 10 minute conversation going about the weather I don't know what that does <laughs> but but the thing I was laughing at was the other day I just I was so lonely that I tried to sign up to being a, a Samaritan volunteer <laughs> because I was like I would love to have deep conversations yeah. with people I feel like I can be there and witness um but they didn't get back to me and a bit of me is like oh, is it because of the fame thing? Is it because someone will recognize my voice and it will take them out of it? Yeah. I'm just at a point in life where I, I wish I could kind of shake it off. And I think I'm probably overthinking it. Probably half the people I meet, they, they don't understand or they're too busy with their own stuff. Oh God, I feel so vulnerable right now because this is a current ongoing thing and it's not something I've figured out and can talk about in the past tense. I really appreciate your honesty and your open vulnerability of navigating connection and depth of connection that is meaningful, where you feel alive in connection and you can feel your mm -hmm. most self in connection and you can feel fully seen as you see yourself in connection. Mm -hmm. And that there are these barriers to that to do with your fame and of course, you appreciate the past that you've had and what it's given you and a platform it's given you. Your dilemma right now is that it is blocking your capacity to have authentic, real connection with people. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be alone. I imagine you're not in a, in, a, in a partner relationship. I am actually. Yeah, I am. Yeah. So I'm not alone alone. It's more just I want new connections. Sometimes I do kind of let him become my whole world because I, do, I don't know how to overcome it. And I, I, I do, like, as I say, I go to classes, I push myself out there. Yeah, I want us to get to equal terrain, really. I don't want to talk about myself, you know? I know that's so ironic because here I am on a podcast, but I don't want to talk about Harry Potter. I don't want to talk about my teenage years. I, I want to talk about them. Like, I have all day with myself. You know, I, I one of my secret dream fantasies is like just not doing this job just going to like um a lovely european country 
France is my idea and just doing an anonymous job because part of like being an actor being a creative is your your work and you're expressing yourself that way but part of it is having like almost a cartoon version of yourself that you present to the media that people know you as and I have a hard time dropping that when I meet new people it's like when they recognize me I go oh I've got to perform I've got to be this I'm less and less able to do it I do have this fantasy of like going and being a waitress somewhere and I I do sometimes go I think I'd be happy doing that. I think I'd meet more people. I think my curiosity would be satiated. I think I'd make more connections. But yeah, I've not quite been brave enough to take that leap. <laughs> well, I guess it, it, what you're saying is that, you know, and I wrote a whole book about this called This Two Shall Pass, mm-hmm. which is that as human beings, we are wired to change and evolve, mm-hmm. that we are wired to grow through different iterations of ourselves, and that the process of change is painful, but it is also how we adapt to our new versions of ourselves and our new mm. environments. What I'm understanding from you is that you are wanting to let yourself change and grow and be mm-hmm. a new Ivana, a kind of a, a response to who, what you're interested and curious about. The, the fame of you, the story about your anorexia, your kind of mental health issues are kind of as much as you value them. And I really get that. Mm. They are kind of badges that are put on your face that people don't see yeah. the beautiful human being who wants to find out about them, who wants to have fun with them and play and be silly. And and so that is quite hobbling. It's like you're hobbled. And I, can, I guess your dream of going to mm-hmm. France is about putting it all behind mm-hmm. you, putting it and just being free. And I imagine people listening saying, well, I wouldn't mind being mm-hmm. famous. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't mind having had that career. It's a complex thing, isn't it? No, exactly. And I don't like to talk about it because I don't regret my life of at course all. Not. And yeah, and there are far, far, far more, I suppose, quote unquote, worthy problems. I happen to believe that like all problems are relative, but it's one of those things where it's like, this is not really a problem. So I shouldn't talk about it. Like it's not, it, it's not a bad problem. My life is great, but there is this thing where I do sometimes feel like I'm a cartoon character. So it's like, there's a lack of authenticity or it's not unpleasant, but as me, the current, present, artistic, expressive version of myself is not always authentic. And there's just a, a conflict of like trying to grow and trying to be who I am, but not, not managing it because nothing will ever be bigger than that cartoon version of myself. <laughs> I, I can't. It's too big for me. And the easy reach, like say in a taxi with someone, a casual chat with a taxi driver. I generally go, I, I generally make something up. I make, because they don't usually turn around in taxis. They're looking ahead. Um, hopefully. So I usually <laughs> pretend I borrow, yeah, <laughs> hopefully. I borrow like a friend's career or my parents. I pretend I'm a teacher because all my family are teachers. So I know quite a lot about that. As soon as I say, oh yeah, an actor. Oh, what are you in? Say Harry Potter. It becomes the caricature. And yeah, I feel like I'm going around in circles. It's more just like growing pains, I suppose you would call it. 
I guess what I'm thinking as a therapist, and obviously I'm not, you've got your own therapist, but I'm thinking since you can't change what people's response to you is, that you've got this cartoon character that is kind of floating in front of you, the only thing that's within your capacity mm -hmm. is to change your relationship with the cartoon character. Because at the moment, it feels like it, it takes up all the space between you and another person. And I don't know whether it's possible psychologically to zoom out and shrink so that your response to what they see in you is different. Because I imagine in your body, there's this thinking like, oh, God, here we go. I can't be me. I don't know what it is you say to yourself when they say, oh, what are the sensations and thoughts that come up when people are excited by your fame? It sort of depends on the setting. Like if I'm expecting it, like if I'm doing an event where I'm being myself, people know who I am. Like if it's a work thing, then it's like, cool. Like I think I kind of mask up a little bit. Um, but if it's in a setting where it's un unexpected, like yesterday in class, is pure panic. Panic. It's the sense of, yeah, mm -hmm, yeah. It's like, uh, uh, they're going to ask for a picture. They're going to talk about me to others. They're going to say I disappointed them. And it's all negative projections. And I think I, th maybe that's what you're talking about. And I think that's what I need to work on is not projecting negatively onto people. Um, because who knows? Like, it, it's really all in my head. Like, they could, they could be seeing me now. They could want to have a deep conversation about today or about themselves or whatever but I just have a strange relationship to it because negative thinking can be can hijack you can't it and it can you can mm -hmm. be hooked into it because it we're habitual beings and so we associate a particular image say with a particular thought and feeling yeah. And it sounds like when people put something onto you, you associate it with a kind of panic feeling and a negative one that is this burden that you have to somehow deliver something that isn't you, that isn't within you, that isn't within your grasp, that some Harry Potter special magic that then you lose your own value as you and that you lose yourself in that moment. Yes. And you lose your value in that moment. Yeah. Yeah, that I would disappoint them because I know how deep it goes to people, like it, as it did for me as a child. I don't want to ruin the magic. I don't want to like hurt somebody's relationship to a fictional character. But at the same time, I'm I'm not the fictional character. But then it also goes into, well, their perception of me is important because it's my reputation, it's my career. And what if that, what if everyone's thinking bad things? <laughs> but I, I think the negative obsession is like a safety thing. It's, it's for control. It's so that, because if you just think bad things all day, every day about everyone, you'll just go at home and you'll stay at home and you'll be safe there. But also it's racing to the bottom, right? If I think the bad things first, yeah, then, then I'm protecting myself. Yeah. But also it's not recognizing the boundaries of what is yours and what is them. It's like merging the boundaries and mm. conflating them. So you lose yourself in the Harry Potter mystique as well mm -hmm. from your young self. So there's like so many 
stirring is that are going on that actually aren't to do with the moment, that are to do with the past and to do with mm-hmm. things that are completely beyond your control. Yeah. Can I ask you about something else? Mm-hmm. Of course, of course. So I was thinking about being a vegan <laughs> and really valuing the importance of animals and their life and the atrocity of of eating meat and, and all of that. And one of the things that I know about myself is that sometimes we want to save or protect something on the outside that is also actually a representation of part of ourselves on the inside. Mm. And the sense that I have from you, and I may well be wrong, is that you have great strengths and power and also this sense of fragility, like a kind of Bambi. And it is like almost like a a very kind of startled animal. And I was Mm. wondering, it's like there's the warrior that is the activist that's protecting the animal, but also that that little fragile animal is in you too. And I was just interested in the dance between the two. Oh, that's really interesting. I want to protect innocence. I I think Ah. it's the most precious thing. Yeah, I do. And I just, it it hurts me that I think animals are the epitome of of innocence. Um, That doesn't mean they don't have other things within them too. There's this purity to them there there's no sort of malicious streak or 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 trying to inflict harm or um no intentional viciousness is there it's for survival yeah i i i want to protect that i haven't really thought about what that says about within myself what am i protecting um i do often think about the animal rights person i i actually don't really say activist anymore because i okay i don't think i am um, I agree that there's all types of activism, but there are activists who go out there every day and put themselves in extremely traumatic situations to witness animals to save them. And that's just not what I do. I say that to honor the fact that there are real activists, but also because it's not me. I just can't do that kind of work and I wouldn't be I wouldn't be best serving uh anyone when I push myself to be that angry slogan bearing righteous activist and I I admire them but I'm not them you want to kind of put your position as what kind of activist you are you're not like uh-huh. a your 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 version of activist so you want yeah. to kind of represent that honestly and I'm interested in innocence I I do often ask like um why do I care about this and so many people don't? What is it that makes someone vegan? Because I believe people are all compassionate. We all want to do good. And this is why I get annoyed when people have a go at vegans because it's like you're so sensitive, you can't you can't not, that it would be harmful to yourself to participate in eating animals because I feel for them. I really, really, it's not food to me. I look at meat and I just think of, the blood and the suffering and the pain so it's not really a choice to be vegan or not be vegan it's like I know these things now so I can't go back I can't unknow them I can't unhave a brain image of of a dead animal and have these associations yeah so I, I think it, it it's yes it's about protecting animals but it's also about protecting that sensitivity in me as you say that fragility I feel everything I feel too much 
I do just want to like animals. I just want to be in nature. I just want to be at peace, in tune with the elements. I don't want to be fighting with people. I don't want to be having arguments online. I don't want any of that stuff. I love that purity that animals have, that they can just be, they can be present. They are instinctual, you know. So, yeah, that's what I'm fighting to protect. And that's what I wish more people would. I, and I wish people would step up as kind of rather than using our power to oppress, I wish we would use it to, yeah, protect the innocent and to be custodians rather than oppressors. That's so beautiful and so powerful. I just want to say a quick thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Youth and Earth. Youth and Earth are a supplement company designed to help us all feel younger for longer. Their product addresses the causes of aging at a cellular level and help us to maintain and sustain a fit and active lifestyle. Their NMN delayed release capsules are one of the staples of my anti-aging, much needed arsenal. I really love them. They're entirely natural, they boost my energy levels and work to promote cell vitality throughout my body. I feel amazing with them. So if you're like me and looking to slow down the aging process, then I encourage you all to take advantage of a very generous 25% off when using the code Julia25 on your first order. Head to www.youthandearth.com now and give your body every opportunity to feel more youthful. I'll just say it again www.youthandearth.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be challenging, especially because we're always growing and changing. Sometimes we aren't quite sure what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk things through. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and can help you to really understand yourself. Whilst it might be nerve wracking or may feel too scary to talk to someone, just remember that pain, unfortunately, is the agent of change. So it's important we continue to grow and stop building walls around our emotions. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery wherever you are. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash therapyworks today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash therapyworks. As you were speaking, I was thinking like letting yourself have that freedom of going with nature, being with nature, mm -hmm. being innocent, being out in the world, not fighting. I can imagine you running around in woods and <laughs> and liberating with the seasons and enjoying the seasons. And I think one of the difficulties, I guess, is 21st century living or living in a city as well. I mean, I'm curious that you're living in a city when mm. you, you feel to me such a natural being to be rural. Ah, 
Mm, well, I grew up in the countryside and I was bored. <laughs> I just felt like yes. nothing happens here, nothing changes here. And definitely as an adult, that idea that, ah, oh, nothing changes, it's becoming more of a positive association I want life I want things to be happening I want to be challenged I just think it's incredible to live in London like a city where you can just have any dream or any thought and you can find a class you can find a course to study it like I didn't know three years ago that I could go to a trapeze class as a well then 29 year old I just thought oh no no you have to follow life a certain way you gotta get your career and then you gotta carry on and don't interrupt it with wild childhood dreams and uh here you can do that and i love it i probably won't live here forever but i love that about london yeah it's opportunity isn't it so given the challenges that you have and that you have faced and obviously you faced very difficult challenges with anorexia when you were very young which you got a lot of treatment for way before you auditioned for Harry Potter, I want to add, Mm -hmm. that it wasn't this simple story of being ill and then having success and being better, that it was, you couldn't have done the, the, the part unless you were kind of well. But what are the things, if there are young people listening and older people listening, in the years that you've navigated so many different versions of yourself and identities and struggles and successes what has helped you I first would say just something that came up as you were talking there um it's something I I read yesterday I was fascinated by not to judge yourself for having struggles for being in pain when I wrote my book to explore my eating disorder and recovery and all that I really wanted to write uh, this story from the sense of there was nothing wrong in my life. I had the best parents. I had a lovely childhood. I didn't have a reason to kick off (laughs) and have mental health problems. I didn't have a traumatic event. Nothing happened. Yeah. People always look for this external triggering event. And I didn't have that. And for years, I actually felt guilty for talking about being emotional pain and turmoil for having all these feelings because it was like I don't have an excuse people again people have real problems this thing I read yesterday which I found so fascinating I'm reading this book it's called uh, Lost Found Remembered and it's by a journalist Lyra McKee she was murdered a, a couple of years ago she's a journalist who wrote all about the troubles in Northern Ireland and the generation her generation who were dealing with the aftermath of the war really the conflict the trauma yeah yes Mm. and she had such a fascinating statistic where she said that the 10 years after the ceasefire was declared suicide rates doubled and she said the irony was and it was the oddest anomaly people couldn't understand why there was more suicide in peacetime than in wartime and i just find that so fascinating because i think a lot of the time when there's like conflict going on, you're inspired, you're galvanized, you, you've you got purpose. And that's how I felt with the anorexia. When that was going on, I felt I was fine. I had a purpose every day. I wasn't happy. I wasn't healthy. But I wasn't dealing with this just pure existential pain of who am I? Why am I here? What is the whole point of me? And that was the thing I was like running from and covering. And as long as I had my anorexia going, I had the distraction and I had the purpose every day. And 
my healing, and I said this in the book, my healing only really began when that problem was solved, when the big, scary, visible problem was dealt with. That's when the wound was exposed. And that's when I actually started to do the work. When we're in the crisis and we're, we're using our defenses to block the pain, uh-huh. to some extent, we're defended from pain. When we drop the defenses and allow ourselves to feel the pain, and what I talk about is pain is the agent of change, mm-hmm. that is when we're kind of dropped in to what you call the wound. And that's when the work starts. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, broadly. And I, and I suppose I'm saying, in answer to your question, what helped? I think just having compassion and having an under, for myself and having an understanding, I think so many of us don't get help and don't actually address our problems because we feel guilty. So, so say my parents, for example, never been to therapy. I have three siblings. We have all been to therapy, but there's something in their generation that says, I can't take that time. I'm too busy. Yeah, I'm too busy or I don't deserve it or um, I don't have big enough problems. I think the the Catholic way of seeing it is that it's an indulgence um, and it's too much, it's too self-centered. So I think a big part of what has helped me is just accepting that you don't have to have an excuse for finding life hard and you don't have to have an excuse for feeling too much and for I struggle to say this because I, I don't want to sound nihilistic because I'm not I'm quite a positive person, um, but I do think life is hard. It is hard. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that film, Julia, um, the Disney movie Soul. Soul? Soul, yeah. No. I wish I had. It sounds like I should have done. You should watch it, yeah. It's, it's, not, um, it's only in the last few years it came out, but there's this whole story of this soul who doesn't want to come to earth because she thinks it's just going to be too much hassle and it just looks awful and painful and icky. And uh, anyway, there's this big mistake and she actually ends up going to earth. She has this meltdown. She's like, what is this? Everything's too loud. It's awful. But then... Um, she tries a slice of pizza and she's like, oh my God, this is the most amazing <laughs> thing ever. So her appetite kicks in and she starts to love all the sensations. But I relate so hard to that character. I just think that is life. It's, it's too intense. There's too much pain and there's too much hardship, but then there's also too much joy and there's chocolate and there's delicious things. And it's like, you got to just be present with it all and soak it all up. And I think as well, if practically speaking, to answer your question, something that helps me like on days where I do feel overwhelmed or lonely or I can't handle things I go there's chocolate if I really don't want to exist I wouldn't be able to eat that anymore and because I I do kind of I'm spiritual I believe in there's another dimension and I think we'll go on and be spirits Mm. but we won't have chocolate and we won't be able to hug each other and we won't have all these beautiful sensory experiences of the earthly plane so yeah, I do kind of focus on simple things like that and the sunlight and the trees and um, a cup of coffee. And I love those things. And if I be still with them and just surrender into the pleasure of it and um, the feeling, it makes me grateful again. And that's that puts me back in the right frame of mind. That's such a lovely way of framing it, both that you don't have to have this terrible, devastating event to have painful, difficult feelings and finding living difficult, that life is difficult. 
and also that there are small, sometimes minute, but also accessible joys that are so full of joy that can totally switch you from feeling incredibly down and unable to cope to feeling like, oh, I love this chocolate. It's Mm. like the sensation of it in your mouth reminds you of joy. And then in reminding you of joy, it kind of lights up your brain network to feel joy. And Mm. that changes you from the going under feeling. Mm And is there anything else that you've learned? Because, I mean, I think there's so much that you're saying that other people will relate to. Reading is one big thing, I think. Yes. Um, Improves empathy reading, doesn't it? I actually heard that on your podcast. It's such an act of generosity. And I think it makes you a more, yeah, empathetic, more compassionate person because you're fully immersing yourself in someone else's mind. I do find, like, prayer and meditation hard to be that still because I have a well this is why I know I should meditate because I have an active mind but when I'm reading I do sometimes feel like the universe is talking to me like I mean even yesterday hearing that statistic about wartime and the suicide rates like that was just stunning to me it contextualized something that I grapple with makes sense doesn't it if you don't have your purpose in your war you're left back to yourself and then you're left back to the injuries and the traumas of the war that you have to cope with on your own. Mm, It's like the Holocaust, people took 50 years to talk about the Holocaust, all 35 years. But Mm. also survivors like Primo Levi killed themselves 10 years, having survived what was so unbearable horror, but living with yourself and the consequences of what you've witnessed and seen, the suicide, I guess, is more... Is, is a risk, is a higher risk. I know, and people, they don't think about that. But like in the same way that if somebody's fighting a mental health crisis, everyone kind of jumps in and they're all involved and they're they're flooding you with care and love. But as soon as you're fine, they go, oh, you're fine now. <laughs> Off you go. But yeah, the, yeah. Thing that, the thing that, you know, caused the problem to develop in the first place, caused the conflict to develop, that's still there, I think. And... Yeah, that's what I think people need to remember about mental health, that it's it's invisible. Because when when it starts to physicalize itself, it's almost a bit late. It's like it's gone too far. Not that it can't be healed, but we need to work on ourselves continually. Like our, our mental health is is not just something to pay attention to in times of distress and in times of war and, and, and emergency. It's ongoing, I think. Yeah, I think that's such a powerful and helpful message is that by the time we're in a mental health crisis, there have been so many flags, probably flares of distress that have gone up that we've ignored. Mm-hmm. Part of being human is having mental health as well as physical health and that all health is both. I talk about this a lot on Instagram, our own little toolbox mm-hmm. of what basically keeps us balanced. Because, yeah. you know, what you're talking about with yourself with fame and things is that you get this spike of dysregulation and fear. And then it's what we do with that and how we, what I talk about as circuit breakers, bring, bring ourselves back down to a sense of safety and being back in mm. ourselves and how we access that for ourselves enables us to navigate the ups and downs of people's response to us or life mm-hmm. events and that we all need our own toolbox. But it's never about not having the oof of like yesterday when you were in your area. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just also like remembering that 
um, those tools, they're, they're not always going to feel comfortable. As I say, my comfort zone is just being at home on the couch reading. Then I get lonely and then I miss the world. And also my head gets crazy. I start all the paranoid trains of thought. I pursue all of them. <laughs> to their end and then Too I fast. just get yeah I get you so negative people. yes yes so I think that's another of my ways of coping my things is just go outside um like as soon as you go out and have a conversation with someone it's your all your dark thoughts they feel less they feel less heavy and things are put into perspective and oh I would recommend anyone who has social anxiety to get a dog because um yeah. having a dog it's so funny you walk down the street and people smile and then that forms a connection or maybe they have a dog and as I say I struggle with small talk I struggle with initiating conversation but my dog does it for me it's brilliant and um I just yes. feel so much better after a walk and after having those sort of mini connections. And it shifts you from that spiraling down mindset of negativity where you compound your negative sense and it changes your perspective and it actually physiologically changes your perspective, going into a different place, going outside, being with a dog, having innocence, I guess, mm -hmm. walking down the street innocently opens you to what is in the now rather than what you're fearing or building mm -hmm. in your brain. People smile at animals the way they don't smile at each other. Like I'll see someone and I'll do it too. I love that. I'll see someone who looks, you know, a bit down and they see my dog and this big bright smile erupts across their face. But then they look up at me and it disappears. And it's because we know that animals just accept us for who we are. And when yeah. we see each other, we feel this sense of I've got to be on guard again. I don't know what you're thinking about me or what you're going to do. I wish we could look at each other and it would be crazy, wouldn't it? But I wish we could look at each other the way we look at dogs. <laughs> I think, that is such a lovely idea. Yeah, I mean, imagine if somebody I love that. greeted you with that bright smile. Like, probably in London, they think you're crazy, but it would be nice. I might try it. <laughs> I love that idea, but I think it's what you're saying is to react to each other without judgment, yeah. without criticism, without defence, like innocently open, like a wagging dog, mm -hmm. like, you know, not in a crazy way, but like having a learner brain, like, ooh. Yeah. What, what's going on here? What is it about you? What, how's your day? Yeah. And a kind of innocent curiosity and energy and warmth, And I love, guess, is isn't it? Saying. Because with, with dogs especially, they sort of embody unconditional love and we expect it from them. And yet we don't identify this in each other. We don't expect that. And it's trust. Yeah. Yeah. But it, but it is there. We trust that dogs can give us yeah. that. So... To end this lovely conversation, I really appreciate all that you've shared. Do you have a question for me? I do have a question for you. And this is a question I feel like I've had this my entire life as long as I've been in therapy because I am fascinated about therapy and therapists. But you never really get to ask the question because Seriously? by the time you kind of come to, you've got through all your stuff, the session's over and they have to, they have, to have the next person in. But I... I'm curious, how far does your compassion go? Are there limits? Like, do you ever have a person come in and something they say personally triggers you? I suppose it's a question about the ethics of therapy and, and you have to go, I can't do this. Like, I guess I, I got interested in this years ago when my therapist, she was specializing in treating victims of child sex abuse. But I remember one time she told me, 
that she also treats the sexual abusers. And I was floored because I was just like, how can you do that? How can you be fighting for the good, for the innocence, but you're also helping the other ones and the, the, the evil? And I think that was like, I had quite an immature understanding where I, I believed in good against evil. And that's changed for me where I don't really... I believe we all just have to do the work. We, we all have good and evil inside us. And the best way is to just do the inner healing. But my question is, as a therapist, do you have a limit to your compassion? And or do you just treat everyone? I have a limit. I definitely have a limit. And um, I'm not speaking for other therapists. I'm only speaking for myself. And there are certainly numbers of people that I've seen in an assessment session who I haven't been able to work with because of the limit of my compassion. And I guess the the most explicit way that is very different to the therapies you're speaking about was I worked at St. Mary's, a big NHS hospital for decades, supporting families when babies and children had died. And one of my red lines of people I said I would never work with were parents who had played a part in their child's death that I knew that was a line beyond which I didn't have compassion. And maybe, you know, there would be reasons in their own history, like with sex abuse, often they are victims of sex abuse themselves. And But I knew that I didn't have that in me. And so I definitely have limits of compassion. I think that's quite healthy to know what they are. Did it take you a long time to learn that? Or was that something you just instinctually knew from the start? I think as a therapist, we're kind of, wanting to meet the other and um, often a bit like I was saying to you, what we most want to give other people is what we most want ourselves. I was a more of a yes mindset to meet people's needs and being needed is is quite a drug, is quite addictive, it's quite hard mm-hmm. to say no. Mm-hmm. I think in the early years I definitely struggled. Wow. You know, I've done it for like 33 years or something. Mm. If I don't know how to say no, then I don't know what the hell's going on. I should I should be all right by yeah. now. But I think sometimes I don't say no when I should. So having said that, I think, yeah, we can catch ourselves out saying yes and then afterwards thinking, shit, what, you know, I should have said no. Then sort of a bigger like philosophical question. Do you believe in therapy for people who've played a role in their child's death? Do you believe in therapy for them from someone else? Yes. Uh, yes, I definitely do. Some, if, I hope there's other people who have... Maybe is it less judgment or less fear around things like this than me? Um, who could support them? But I definitely believe everybody has a capacity to change and, you know, like restorative justice, that kind of idea. Mm-hmm. So I definitely believe in that. Maybe I'm, the word, I don't know if it's nice enough or good enough, or but I don't have that mm-hmm, within mm-hmm. me. Wow. That's quite a wisdom, though, to know your limits. Just always been fascinated by that because... I so believe in therapy, but we're all human. And I've been guilty of like putting my therapist on a pedestal and thinking, she's God. She just has this unconditional love. That's so that's why I wanted to know. So thank you for opening opening up about that. I wasn't sure if that was too personal, but thank you. No, I think it's a really interesting question. I have never been asked it before. So it's nice to be asked a new question, mm. which I'm sure is the same for you. Yes. But Ivana, thank you so much 
for your generosity in speaking to me. Do you want to let people know about things that you're doing or your podcast so they can find you for themselves? Sure. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you for having me. I was quite scattered in this session. I feel like, was it an interview? Was it a therapy session? Sometimes hard to know the difference, but thank you for just letting me be that way. And for your podcast, God, I have so much admiration for therapists and teachers. I don't know how we would function without them. People who give us this space to be our full selves and accept all sides of ourselves and to grow and heal. Um, I just think it's amazing. Well, thank you. So I have a couple of projects coming up, but I can't say anything yet. So uh, they can just follow me on Instagram. I'm at Ivana Lynch and I'm, I'm not podcasting for the minute, switching back to acting and writing. So yeah, just keep an eye there if they want to. Good. <laughs> yeah. But thank you again. Thank you for having me on. It's so nice chatting to you. Thank you, Ivana, so much. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Hello, Sophie and Emily. We're going to talk about Ivana Lynch. I was so moved by my conversation with her and how open she was and how complex it is developing as a young woman and dealing with overwhelming fame and success or what is seen as success. And I guess that's not in our experience. We don't know what that's like, but it, culturally it's what everybody wants, isn't it? That I want to be like that person. Yes. I thought she was really courageous and uh, really valued her openness. And I was thinking about that, about uh, obviously it's really that thing of fame being an exceptional experience. And yet I was also thinking to a much lesser degree, we do all have the experience of struggling with that people put a projection or an expectation on who we are according to our characteristics, your gender, your race, your class, what your clothes you wear, and also like in family roles in terms of what is helpful about her reflections of that struggle for people listening to the podcast, of like how we can all battle that thing of how can we get through to be seen as we are ourselves authentically and push back from people wanting you to be a certain way <laughs> because Fixed. It, it fits their expectations of what someone like you is like. Well, just for those that don't know what projection is, is when the person looking at the other person puts onto them what they think they see and what they want to see and may miss what is really being shown. And projective identification is when we put on to another person the parts of ourselves that we don't like. So it may be we put on to them that they're uh, mean or uh, cruel when actually it's the part of ourselves that we're, we're not liking and we projectively identify that on them. Yes, and it can be informed by cultural biases and by personal experiences, can't it? You know? Exactly, good point. We could relate to her experiences that that can be really hard. Like in family roles, sometimes people really push back against you being different to the role that they've put you in or the family has put you in. 
and that people can get quite cross and you know, that battle to be seen and tolerate the fact that that might disturb somebody else, that we're not who they would like us to be and whether you can trust that that is their responsibility to resolve the fact that you're not who they think you are. Yeah, and then also in families, it's, it messes with the whole system. Because exactly. if you're not your role, then that role, and other people can't be their roles, and suddenly it's chaos. <laughs> and also, I was thinking, you know, for our family, when ruptures like that have happened, it's actually been better for everybody. <laughs> like the painful, dis- painful, uncomfortable, and maybe you think oh, I shouldn't do it because it will upset everybody. Shouldn't express myself that way. But in the longer term, it's not just better f- for you. It's actually the projections are not very helpful ways of living in the world it is healthier and more helpful to be in the reality definitely obviously if you're a varna or someone who is well known in whatever field it's like the volume of everyone else is so much louder then your own voice kind of gets easier to lose yes i can't imagine how much harder it is to anchor yourself and to allow yourself to be yourself when there's so much put onto you and also this sort of feeling of being robbed of yourself when someone looking at you because they're they're kind of putting something on you that they need. And I was wondering psychologically, what is it about famous people that we, the general public, are so fascinated by? And why do we want to be connected with it or seen with it? Or what's the psychological purpose of looking up to or wanting these famous figures? I think it must be something to do with fantasy. Like I imagine this perfect life with all these things and people all adoring you and, you know, whatever the sort of fantasy is. We've always had heroes, haven't we? Like culturally back in time before famous people, there were myths, weren't they, of famous heroes and and what their qualities were. And But then also we also seem to really enjoy tearing them down. But I, I wonder what to someone who there's probably people out there who've really studied that as a pheno- psychological phenomenon, isn't there? Yeah, I think one of the big messages from a lot of our podcasts actually, but came from this one too, is the power of self compassion. Is that when we feel under threat by how people are looking at us or how we're seeing ourselves, the healing balm of turning to ourself with kindness. A bit like you did when you saw the photograph of yourself and you went into a kind of spiral of shame, which I often do with articles as well. I was thinking about the interrelationship. So, you know, I think we've thought much too much about the independent personal, whereas so much is the water we're swimming in within ourselves, but that is swimming in the water of the external. And we co-regulate through what's happening to us externally, but that we can have centering, calming, in self-relational mechanisms that bring us back to a base. And it felt like when she could do that, that really supported her. And I think for other people listening, that that can really support them. Yes. I remember, Mum, when we went to talk together at School of Life in London for Christina Neff, uh, who yeah. does lots of self-compassion. She's the best. She put on the show notes if people want to see her website. She's the best. But in this talk, she got everybody to put both their hands on their heart. And you could feel like the whole room just sort of softened and went, hmm. And I still use it. I use it for myself. I've brought it with clients. 
And that's just one of those little moments where you can go turn towards yourself and that the physical gesture of holding your heart in that way, I think, can really prompt that shift from being very harsh to being actually, ah. When you do that, then what you transmit is kinder and warmer. Because when you're harsh on yourself, you're then in an intense threat or withdrawal state. And then what you get back is the negative feedback loop. And so, you know, having that as a, as a place to self-resource is, is incredibly heightened state, under threat state. And then you react to the world from a more, has the power of three, as it were. It's like buy one, get one, free. Yeah, and I think I really resonated with Ivana talking about how she felt like I sh- I shouldn't have mental health struggles. I shouldn't find things difficult because actually look at all these things that I, I have loving parents. I have this happy family. Now I have this career success. Therefore, I shouldn't feel this way. And I think one of many messages I'd love this podcast to get across is that everything is relative and you feel what you feel. And the more you invalidate your own experience by saying, I shouldn't feel this way because I've got these things, the less likely it is that you're going to be able to heal. I think you have to allow yourself to feel those feelings and allow yourself to know that it is valid to find things hard. And that's not to say that you can't also have gratitudes for the things that you have in your life, but that both can be true. Absolutely. And I often think of emotions as just information. They're not good or bad. They're just things you can be curious about. Someone once gave me a mug that said feelings are not facts. <laughs> <laughs> and it also, it brings to me one of the things I thought about listening to the podcast, which was about uh, neurodiversity and that not everybody experiences the world in the same way and that we have a certain expectation, like the should you were talking about, like, oh, I should, like, as though there's some kind of normal, like, well, if this is what happened to me, then I should not have problems. When actually we have a huge range of ways of experiencing the world. And if you might be on the autistic spectrum, if you might be highly sensitive, if you're neurodivergent, then often your experience of the world is really profoundly different to, to people. But to delegitimize your own experiencing is is so unhelpful in that regard. There are enormous strengths in different ways of relating. Ivana was talking about her experiencing of the world and she seemed to have a sensitivity to huge joy and compassion and sensory pleasure when she was talking about chocolate. And there's also then an acute pain and suffering. And then we don't really get to, you know, mum, you always say you don't get to choose. You can't get cut off the bad and just have the good. Yes. And I think the other thing about neurodivergence is that it does make the world harder. So, When I see children or teens who have a new diagnosis of autism and are maybe upset by it or think that it means that there's something wrong with them, I think the way that I explain it is that it's not that there's something wrong with you. Your brain is just wired in a slightly different way. And what sucks is that because, say, 80% or whatever the percent of the population are wired slightly differently, they've designed the world to be designed for them. And therefore, you're kind of going through a school system and a world and an environment that has been designed for people who don't mind lots of noise, who don't like need people to spell out social cues in a more understandable way. And so you're trying to keep up with this language when your brain is wired slightly differently. And if you had been in charge, 
then the world would be designed for you and you would find it easy. It's so funny. I had this exact conversation with a client this morning <laughs> about design, how the world wasn't designed that way. But the value of diversity, you know, she would talk about how much she loved animals. And I was thinking like, thank goodness we're diverse in our experience of the world and what we're passionate about and what is important to us. For me, as a person who's quite into ecotherapy and this age of the Anthropocene that we're in and climate crisis, to have people in the world who care deeply about the other than human beings is something that we really, really need in this world. You know, talking about neurodiversity, Greta Thunberg, uh, someone on the spectrum, has played a huge role in impacting people's view. And that she talked about her veganism, didn't she, Ivana? Rather than like, I mustn't eat meat. She didn't want to eat meat. And that the value of these different ways of being in the world and our is so valuable to us as a culture, as a whole. Yeah, and just to clarify, we're not talking about Ivana here, but generally what that topic brought up in us and where it took me through sort of the diversity conversation is, and this is something we as a family do, is that reading raises your empathy. And I didn't know that before she said that to me. But of course... In reading other people's stories and nonfiction, it expands your understanding because it puts you into their mindset. And I thought that was a lovely insight that really um, interested me. Yes, I didn't know it increased your empathy. <laughs> I didn't know that either. It's a new fact for me. I was also really fascinated by the idea of limits of compassion and the idea that there are people that you wouldn't see as a therapist because the limits of your compassion. And I just thought such an interesting way of framing it. I mean, I think for me, I think there are definitely clients that I wouldn't take on often actually because like it's too close. <laughs> so it's, it's almost like too much compassion. Like if for whatever reason, their children are exactly the same age as my children or something that just feels too close that I wouldn't be able to do my job essentially. And then on the other side, I worked for actually quite a lot of years with parents whose um, children had been removed from their care. I'd see them alongside their children who were living in different places. And often these were parents who had been accused of abusing their children or exposing them to danger in some way. And I think for me, yes, it was sort of very complicated, rich, challenging work to do. Was I'm so aware of my own fallibility that I just felt like if I was you and I had had your experience in life, I I don't know that I would do anything different. So firstly, like, I don't feel like I'm in a position to judge. And secondly, I guess my hope is that in doing this work that you can learn more about yourself and find a way to be with your child or separate with your child, but in a way that is more therapeutic and less damaging for all of those concerned, even if it causes pain, which it is likely to do. It's just an interesting debate. Mm, I so agree, Em, and I really have that feeling of there go I, but for the grace of God type thing of like when I worked in prisons with 18 to 24-year-old men. I think, you know, before I went into prisons, there was a sense of there must be different people, like monstrous in some way, you know, like people, like parents who might have been accused of abusing their children or people who have commit crimes are some kind of other. And actually when you're in relationship, they're just another human being. Right? And as flawed as I am, but the 
important thing that you were saying, Mum, is like that you have to know where your limitations are. The limitation is not in the client. The limitation is in you yeah. as a therapist of just knowing this is what I'm going to be able to do a good therapist for. And it won't serve my client to work with someone that I have too many judgments about because I can't get over it for whatever reasons or it feels too emotional. And that's the value in it, isn't it? It's not a judgment on the client. So I think on that very excellent note, we need to stop and thank Ivana so much for such a powerful and honest and deep conversation. And for those of you listening, if you got something from it that you would like to share with friends or family, do please share it and rate and subscribe to the podcast. And we'll be in your ears next week. Thank you. Let me tell you about a podcast I love. And honestly, I wish I'd been around when my children were younger. The Motherkind podcast explores how to feel happier, more confident and empowered in your motherhood, even in this world of pressure, judgment and comparison. Host Zoe Blasky is the UK's leading motherhood coach, and I love her kind, wise and empathetic approach to the challenges mothers face today. Every week she speaks to an incredible expert such as Gabor Mate, Dr Julie Smith, and me to share actionable steps and powerful lessons to living your life as a mother with more joy and unapologetic confidence. Listen wherever you get your podcast, just search Mother Kind.